Welcome to this episode of Theology for the People. This is Pastor Nick Cady here, and I'm joined today by Shane England, all the way from Ennis, Ireland. Hi, Shane. Welcome to the program. Hi, Nick. Thank you for having me on your show. So, Shane, I have heard about you, but we've never <laughs> never actually met. Actually, this is the first time I've seen your face now talking to okay. Zoom. Yeah. Um, so, Shane, we have some common friends. Uh, what we're going to be talking about today, rather, is uh, an area where you've done quite a bit of study in the area of textual criticism and how that applies to the issue of Bible translation. So, you know, it's a common question that people ask is, you know, with all the Bible translations out there, how important is it that I choose one translation over another? Uh, And what are the criteria upon which I choose a translation over and against another translation? So we're going to talk about that. But before we do that, I just would love for you to introduce yourself to I guess not just our listeners, but also to me. And uh, I'd love to hear more about your past as a missionary, uh, some of our common friends, and um, and things yeah. of that sort. Great, yeah. So, born and raised in Ireland, uh, on the west west coast of Ireland, and by God's grace, both my parents were uh, evangelical Christians back in the nineteen eighties, which was very unusual, but. Uh, they had come to a faith in Christ in the 1970s, so I was raised in that context, and I was baptized when I was 16. And I've been part of the church, and you know, growing as a disciple since my since my youth. And went to university to do an undergraduate in history and politics. And it was during my time in uni- in university that I was involved with the Christian Union which is affiliated with IFES in Ireland, which um, is known as InterVarsity, I think, in the UK. And I was involved in short-term mission trips to Ukraine. And so I really got a heart for that country. And so when I graduated, I spent a year in Dublin uh, in an internship program with IFES. And then I went to live in Ukraine. I was there for four years in eastern Ukraine, the city of Kharkiv. And I was involved with a Calvary Chapel church alongside my, my ministry there with the student group SSH. And so I would have met Nathan Medlong, who I think you know. So he was one of my close, close friends from that time. And I uh, met my wife, who was, she's Irish, and um, we had met on a short-term mission trip to Ukraine. And we dated long distance for two years and then we got married and she came over to live in Ukraine with me. And after that, I went back to Ireland, wanted to pursue some further studies in theology, but wasn't really sure where or how. So I spent about just over three years in Cork City down the south of Ireland, where I attended Calvary Chapel there under the great uh, pastorage of Mike Neglia, who I know that you are familiar with. So I uh, really benefited a lot from my time there, just in terms of my own growth as a Christian and my own understanding of theology. And it was at that time that I decided to apply to do a master's in theology at Dallas Theological Seminary in Texas. So that's where we went. And I was four years in Texas. And, I, and after graduating, uh, my intent was to come back to Ireland to serve my local church. So came back to County Clare and I've been, uh, amongst other things, I've been working in the ministry in the church here in Ennis. And so I'm a, I'm an elder whose primary responsibility is the teaching 
and I also do the worship <laughs> and the youth program uh, and a few other things as well. But that's ministry in the West of Ireland. You kind of have to get stuck in, which is great. Hmm. Great, great. Yeah, so that's, uh, that's excellent. Um, yeah, I'm familiar with uh, InterVarsity and uh, mm-hmm. it's IFES, right? So I was a missionary in Hungary for uh, 10 years. And so we had it there as well. In Hungary, it's called Mekdes. And, um, and so I know there's different iterations of it in all the different countries, but um, sure, uh, yeah, no, that's an excellent ministry. We we loved working with them, and um, so mm-hmm. that's, that's awesome that you were able to work with them in Ukraine. So, um, tell me a little bit more about your studies at Dallas Theological Seminary. Uh, yeah, so one of the one of the areas that I was really interested in is the idea of Bible translation and the history of the text of the Bible and its history through time. And that's referred to today as textual criticism. It's where we have to look at the manuscript evidence and try to ascertain the original readings for different portions of scripture. And so that really was something I was very interested in. And one of the professors there, Daniel Wallace, was uh, and still is uh, very active in that field of study. So that really drew my attention to Dallas Seminary. And the other thing I was interested in was church history. And there was a, a great professor there. Uh, he since moved on, actually, but um, Dr. Bingham was teaching church history there. And we also had Dr. John Hanna, uh, who was also an excellent uh, professor of church history. So those were my keen areas of interest. And yeah, that was really, that was the reason why I chose Dallas Seminary really was for those teachers. Yeah. Yeah. So I think I just want to get a little more clarification on the term textual criticism. And the reason mm. is because like I'm familiar with it, but here's what I've found yeah. is that when I talk to many people and I'll use terminology like literary criticism or textual criticism. Yeah. Um, people tend to take that the wrong way or they, they view that term with suspicion. They say, wait a second, why are you criticizing the Bible? They say, you know, this mm. is the problem. And they'll think about things like the Jesus seminar in the 1800s and people trying to chop up yeah. and determine what they think with a critical mm, yeah. sense. So maybe you could bring some clarity to that for those who aren't familiar. Yeah. The fact is, crit- like critical study of anything involves using your brain. Um, so you have to weigh up evidence, you have to assess arguments, and you have to come to a conclusion. And that's not just in the areas of theology. Any critical study of any field of expertise requires uh, you to engage the evidence and assess the merit of an argument. And so when we talk about textual criticism, the, the job of the textual critic, critic is to look at the evidence that we have concerning the text of the Bible in manuscripts. And these manuscripts were written by scribes. Um, they are of varying quality. Some are excellent, some are rather not excellent. <laughs> uh, some are fragmentary. Uh, and so you have to piece together the evidence. You have to sift through the text to see what is spurious, what is added later, what is mistaken, to get back to the original text as best you can. Um, and really, textual criticism, it, in one sense, it is a very expertise study, but on another sense, it's a really basic um, approach to reading. Anyone who has read a book or a newspaper or a um, a journal article engages in textual criticism because invariably we'll come across mistakes in the text, printing mistakes, uh, typos, and we have a natural ability to to assess the evidence before us and see, well, that was clearly 
non-intentional or that's, you know, they've misplaced that word. That's textual criticism. We do it every day. Um, so the biblical New Testament and Old Testament textual criticism is looking at the manuscript evidence and trying to see where scribes have made errors and looking at evidence. And really, it is trying to get back to the, the original text as best we can, which is a central aspect to the Christian faith. I mean, the Bible as um, the source and the chief authority for the Christian life has always been a keen area of study across the centuries, long before the rise of secular humanism and, you know, critics of the Bible in, in the modern sense. Uh, Christians from the very earliest times have have engaged with the question of textual criticism when they were reading handwritten manuscript copies. And so it's it's been a long um, and ancient practice of, of the Christian church to, to follow this uh this school of thought. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's uh, I think that's a great, uh, very good explanation. And I would just encourage our readers that when we say the word criticism, um, you need to take that in a kind of a, a different sense than how I would, you know, criticize somebody whose, whose clothes I think look bad or something like that, right? This isn't yeah. a criticism for the sake of criticizing it's criticizing or it's critical thought. And yeah. um, and dealing with that. Okay, so that I do want to talk to you about manuscripts. So let's just yeah. jump into that right now, and then maybe we can answer some of our our more practical questions at, at the end of this. Um, sure. Tell me a, more about manuscripts. Here's the thing that comes to mind. I know that some people um, they have heard that there are you know two main bodies of manuscripts, or, or perhaps that's not even correct. So help us understand. What's the deal with manuscripts? How is it that certain translations draw on some manuscripts and certain translations right. draw on others? Yeah, so when it comes to the Bible, we are in a unique position from the sheer quantity of manuscripts. Um, obviously, the original writings no longer exist. They, they have perished because either they were destroyed during in, in persecutions or they just fell apart due to the centuries that followed their composition, which is perfectly normal. I mean, anything from the first century, any great classical work of history or literature or even religious writing, we, we don't work from the original copy or the original manuscript, we work from copies. Uh, and that's that's just standard historical research. Uh, so when it comes to the Bible, we're looking at thousands of manuscripts, the earliest dating back to the second century, the latest that were written even beyond the printing press. We have, you know, manuscripts from Eastern Europe that even were written as late as the 15th, 16th, 17th century. Um, so when you gather all those together, you're looking at thousands of manuscripts that cover the entire history of the church. And some of them are fragmentary, some of them are complete, some of them could be a scrap from a single chapter, some are the complete uh, New Testament, such as... Uh, Codex Sinaiticus in the British Library. Um, and so, you know, all of these manuscripts that we have to look at, they all have problems because they are produced by fallible people. And so they will invariably contain mistakes, they will invariably contain errors, and you have to assess the evidence and make a judgment call on what is the most plausible original reading. Um, and the same is true for the Old Testament. We have um, you know, even more uh, Hebrew manuscripts, a lot of those are very late, a lot of those date from the medieval period and later. But then you do have some early manuscripts like the Dead Sea Scrolls, which the earliest I think would date back to the 3rd century BC. Um, so those are extremely important for the reconstruction of the text, the text of the Old Testament. 
And then the, the textual critic also has other resources that they can use. You have early translations of the Bible. So from the Old Testament, you have the very important translation of the Old Testament into Greek, the Septuagint, which was the, the go-to translation for the New Testament. Uh, the apostles, when they quote the Old Testament, they invariably, not always, but invariably will use the, the Septuagint, which is that Greek translation of the Old Testament. And so we have some extremely important manuscripts of the Septuagint that are extremely useful for reconstructing the text of the Old Testament. Uh, we also have the Latin Vulgate. We also have other languages like the Coptic in Egypt, the Syriac in, in, uh, in Syria. Uh, you have, you know, this wealth of information that the textual critic will draw from. And then you also have uh, quotations of the Bible in the theological writings of the early church. And so the textual critic's job is to assess all of that information and to work through the evidence and to produce a text that as best as they think reflects the original. Um, and that's that's exciting because it's not just we're not looking at a work of literature, we're looking at the, the word of God here. So this is, you know, something that the, the church has prized. And it's also something controversial because when you're dealing with the Bible, you will invariably uh upset people because they will have their favorite tradition or their translation that they grew up with and that they get upset when they read new translations. And this is a problem that the church has faced, you know, from the get-go. Uh, Jerome, in, when he tried to revise the Latin Bible according to the best textual critical evidence available to him, he he wasn't met with open arms. He was met with a lot of hostility. People were upset because he was changing the text. And Jerome would just say, you know, when he was doing this around the year 400, he wasn't changing it. He was correcting it. He was getting back to the Hebrew manuscripts. He was looking at the evidence. Um, uh, Augustine, who was his contemporary around the year four, around the year 400, uh, Augustine, who was living in North Africa, he wrote a letter to Jerome, who was living in Bethlehem. And he said, you know, I, I hear you're revising the Old Testament. And Jerome, you know, was famous for doing that. Jerome was one of the few church fathers who could read Hebrew. And so his revision was based on the Hebrew evidence. And Augustine said, well, there was a, a, a church that was meeting in modern day Tripoli. And there was almost a riot broke out because the, the preacher was reading from the book of Jonah. And when he came across the plant at the end of the book of Jonah that the Lord caused to grow up, he was reading from your new version. And instead of the the plant being described as a, a gourd or a cucumber. Uh, Jerome's translation had ivy. And so there was almost a riot that broke out in the church because people were upset that their their translation had been changed. Uh, and that goes throughout history. We see that again, you know, in the 19th century, the 20th century, uh, people can react very strongly to this this idea of Bible translation because obviously the Bible is, is so central to their faith. Um, that's the perilous job of textual criticism. Yeah, so let me ask you this, Shane. Like, having done all this study and uh, and found out, you know, how these things took place over over history, yeah, et cetera, Has this uh, bolstered your confidence in the Bible, or has it kind of undercut your confidence in the Bible as we have it now? Oh, um, it's bolstered it. I mean, Christianity isn't a movement that seeks to hide. The pursuit of truth from anyone and it's it's amazing that even when we go back to the the very early church this is not a question that people hid from they embraced this they they took pains to pursue the the pursuit of purity in the text and to correct what went wrong 
Uh, and that was, you know, that's the hallmark of the Christian faith is that it's not clinging to tradition for the sake of tradition. It's the pursuit of truth. And this this study for me has definitely bolstered uh, my appreciation for the Bible, uh, its trustworthiness, um, its its beauty, and the history of the text. And all of these problems that we talk about, I mean, none of those have impacted the cardinal doctrines of my faith. Um, if anything, I've seen that those cardinal doctrines, they rest on an evidence that is robust and able to withstand the tightest of scrutiny. And this this pursuit of textual criticism has helped me in my understanding of the Bible and in Bible study and in teaching the Bible. Yeah, it's definitely been a huge benefit and encouragement to me. Yeah, that's great. I've, I just know that I've talked to people before, like I, I did a class on church history here at our church. Yeah. And um, I had some people say, you know, looking at it, they said, wow, this is kind of like visiting a sausage factory, right? Like I, I like sausage, but then I went to the sausage factory and I saw how it was okay. made and it was a bit disturbing. Um, and I would yeah. say it doesn't have to be right with church history. Like we can look at that and we can see the grace and the providence of God in the midst of all this human mess. And, yeah. and actually, I think it's a little bit cleaner with the Bible translations than it is sometimes with the church history. But um, yeah, maybe you could just speak to that for a moment. Yeah, uh, I think it was one of the uh, one of the great scholars of the, the late medieval church. Uh, I think it was Cardinal Cayetan, who was a biblical scholar himself, but he, he was once asked, you know, well, when we look at the question of canon, is it not true that Jerome re- rejected the deuterocanonical books? And is that not upsetting because the late medieval churches embraced those books? And, and Cayetan, he said, you know, don't be disturbed like a raw scholar. I mean, you have to look at the evidence. Don't be upset because your your pet, you know, doctrine or your pet uh, belief has been rattled. Just pursue the evidence where it leads you and I think that is, has to be the hallmark of Bible study. We shouldn't be afraid of these questions. Um, Christian scholars have never hid from this. And if you look at the idea of textual criticism for the Bible, it it stands apart as a discipline compared to the classical uh, the classical discipline of textual criticism. So if you read a historical work from the time the New Testament was written or thereabouts, if you read the works of Tacitus, etc., I mean, those works are reconstructed on the basis of a single manuscript. You know, the gap between when Tacitus wrote his Annals of Imperial Rome to when we have the first manuscript is a thousand years. And yet scholars don't wring their hands and think, you know, oh, like this is just so terrible. Like we'll never know what what Tacitus said. They just get down to the business of working with the evidence. Um, and when it comes to the New Testament and the Old Testament, the amount of evidence that we have is, is just vast. The precision that scholars have put into this is unparalleled. Um, and so, any, if anything, it excites me that we have such resources. We have at our fingertips this wealth of information that we should be aware of, um, and it should inform our reading of the Bible. Uh, and certainly in the 21st century, we have we have no excuse for 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 not pursuing these subjects because the information is so readily available. Mm. Yeah. We did a study for our church a few years ago, um, addressing the question of like, can we believe in a, in a God who's given us what we said, an imperfect Bible. Now we said that tongue in cheek because we don't actually believe that it's an imperfect Bible, but that's sure. uh, responding to a question that some people would have. 
And we looked at this and I actually found a, a really great chart, which showed, you know, like you're mentioning Tacitus, other um, ancient writings, and how yeah. the manuscripts for the Bible, I mean, it's like, it's like not even close. It's so incredibly, there's so much more evidence and manuscripts mm. um, for the Bible yeah. that um, nothing else even holds a candle to it. So, um, yeah, no, great points there. L- let me ask you this. Um, when, uh, what do you think are some common misconceptions that people have in regard to Bible translation as we move towards more, maybe more like practical questions? Yeah. Um, common misconceptions. Well, I'm not sure how common this is, but I, I have heard this, that translations are the more, uh, the more modern a translation, the less likely it is to be authentic because it's it's further removed from the time of the New Testament. In other words, a translation in the 21st century is a translation of a translation of a translation of a translation. It's like the, the phone game. And the further we move into history, it, it just becomes this, this cloud of unknowing. We, we'll never know really what it said because, you know, we're just translating a translation that came before and before and before. Um, but it, it's actually the opposite. Uh, <laughs> modern translations are going back to the earliest text. So, you know, a translation of the Bible in English in the 17th century, I mean, it was a veiling of manuscripts that went back to around the 12th century. So, you know, if a Bible like the King James in 1611, it was primarily working off of evidence in the 12th century. But a Bible in the 20th or 21st century is working off of evidence going back you know, to the beginning of the second century, and in terms of the Old Testament, going back to the third century BC. And so, we're actually narrowing the gap hugely, and we're accessing information that is, um, you know, essential to understanding the, the primitive and early texts of the Bible. Uh, but some people have this view that, you know, the further we go in history, that the, the further distance we have from the text, but actually it's the opposite. It, we're actually getting closer and closer. Um, as more study, as more manuscripts are uncovered, and manuscripts are being uncovered all the time. Uh, you know, fragments of the New Testament are are being published and, and discovered all the time. And so it is it is something that is actually getting clearer, more precise, and, and better as history goes on, rather than the opposite, that it's becoming just more and more polluted. Um, I guess another misconception would be sometimes you have the idea that a mo- a newer translations change the Bible <laughs> and or, or remove passages. This or, is the one yeah, I hear a lot. Sure. They've taken stuff out of the Bible. And what's, what's happening there is that people are conflating a preferred translation with the original texts. And they're not always the same thing. Um, if a modern translation reads differently to maybe an older translation, you have to understand why it may be that this new translation is actually more accurately reflecting the text that, say, the Apostle John wrote when he wrote the, the, the Gospel of John, as opposed to removing information from the Gospel of John, a modern translation may in fact be correcting what has been added. They're sort of taking out information that scribes have put in over the centuries, either explanation glosses or what's very frequent in the Gospels is what we call parallel corruptions. So if a if an account is given in one gospel, um, they'll bring in information from the other accounts in the synoptic gospels just to fill it out because you know they understood from the other gospels events that were happening, so they would put them in uh, to a to a single gospel account. And so I, I hear that too that people are concerned that verses are taken out, but you need to understand why. 
And when we say verses are taken out, it could simply be that we are correcting what shouldn't have been there in the first place. And so that's mm-hmm. a good thing. We should be happy about that. Um, the you know the the idea that we're reading a text that is closer to what the apostles wrote should excite us. Uh, it should inform our theology and our our way of living, as opposed to upset us. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, there's this verse at the end of Revelation that says, you know, no one should add to or subtract from the words of this prophecy. Now, whether that applies to Revelation or to the whole Bible, you often hear it applied Mm -hmm. to the whole Bible. But, but, you know, I'll I'll often hear people quote that and say, this is the problem with the new translations. They're removing all these things. But I think Mm -hmm. the easy rebuttal is to say, well, hey, do you want to just read more things that were added, which is also apparently against the rules? So we shouldn't be yeah. adding nor subtracting. And so, but right. here's, the, here's the thing that I often hear people will say um, that, you know, like you said, what is the motive in doing this? Well, they will assume yeah. that they're maybe in a conspiratorial way, right? That people mm. have, um, that the companies, which are funding these Bible translations or whoever's behind them, they have uh, nefarious motives and their goal is to change Christianity for whether it's political means, whether it's because of some, what they might perceive to be a liberal agenda, et cetera. Right. That would be the motivating factor. What would you say to that? Yeah. You know, it's tough. I mean, that that mindset really doesn't seem to be inducive to maybe evidence <laughs> as opposed to maybe hearsay. Um, you really have to engage what's happening with your with your mind and understand why these things happen as opposed to uh, resorting to maybe grand theories of world domination and conspiracies and all that kind of stuff. Um, you, you know, the... The, the text of the Bible is what we as, you know, evangelical Christians have professed to be the inerrant infallible word of God is as originally given. Um, and that is the pursuit of Bible translation is to produce a Bible that as best as possible from the available evidence reflects what was originally given, because that is our standard. Our standard isn't a, a, a previous translation. That's not the gold standard. The gold standard is always the original text. And the original text doesn't necessarily mean the original manuscript because the, major, the original manuscripts are gone, but the original text can be preserved in the copies um, um, that come later uh, from the scribal tradition across church history. Yeah. So let me ask you another question that often comes up. I've had this asked to me mostly by uh, people who either are not Christians and in some cases um, by many of my Muslim acquaintances and friends. Uh, They've asked the question, you know, why are there so many different Bibles out there? Now, by that, they mean versions or translations. But in a way, Mm -hmm. they view that as... um, as something which doesn't give a lot of credibility to Christianity. In fact, they make, it makes it seem fragmented and, um, and disjointed. Uh, yeah, I, I, I can maybe understand why they would think that, um, particularly from the Islamic perspective, uh, certainly in conservative Islam, the, the, the prevailing uh, view is that the Quran cannot be translated 
it ceases to be authoritative in any sense if it is translated. Uh, and so the, certainly textual criticism is not a forte of Islamic scholarship either um, for a variety of reasons. It's not something that is, is widely discussed. It's sometimes even uh, denied that it exists, um, despite the evidence of textual variation within copies of the early Quranic tradition. Um, but to, to explain why we have so many translations of the Bible is because language changes. The English language is constantly evolving. The English language that we speak now is is very different to when the Anglo-Saxons arrived in Britain in the 5th century. Uh, it is very different to English in the times of Shakespeare and later. It's even different to what they spoke in the 19th century. It's an evolving language, as all languages. And so the idea that we would have translations that are seeking to keep up with the language, far from being a sign of division, it's actually a sign of how important the Bible is, that we don't want it to sit on a shelf and read nice, archaic language that just sounds holy. The pursuit of Bible translation is to produce a, a text that is both accurate and understandable. And that I think is one of the hallmarks of the revelation of God. Um, if you if you know that the, even in the, the time of the apostles, when they wrote the New Testament, they wrote not in classical Attic Greek, they wrote in marketplace, working man, Koine Greek, common Greek. And that baffles a lot of scholars from the time of the Renaissance when Europeans began to uh, revive the study of biblical Greek. Uh, because when they read the New Testament in the Greek, it didn't read like Plato or Socrates or Thucydides. It, it was a different kind of Greek. Uh, and, you know, scholars in Europe in the 19th century, um, they, they coined the phrase Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit Greek. And there was this theory that the reason why the New Testament doesn't read like Plato or Socrates is because it was a special kind of holy religious language that the Holy Spirit sent down. And, and that's the reason why it, it sounded so different is because it was a special kind of holy language. And that was the idea of Richard Rote, the, the German philologist. But uh, scholars like Deismann, they said, far from being the super duper holy Greek, in fact, what you're reading is marketplace Greek, the Greek of the common man. And that, I think, is so important, is that the Holy Spirit inspired the writers in the New Testament to use the language that was best understandable, not just in the terms of the Greek language, which was widespread in the Eastern Roman Empire, but the kind of Greek that they used was readily understandable to everybody, not just the most highly trained Greek philosopher. Um, and that that undergirds the pursuit of English translations too. We want to revise, we want to correct, um, we want to produce a translation in a language that people understand. Um, and I think that's a good thing. Uh, you know, if you read the, an English translation from the 17th century, like the King James, the 1611 edition, uh, it will speak about in Daniel chapter three, people bringing out um, a sackbut to, you know, to, in the court of Nebuchadnezzar. I, I mean, a sackbut, nobody 
knows, I'd be very surprised if anyone knows listening what that is. Uh, well, it was a type of musical instrument. Uh, modern translations render it a lyre. Um, you know, uh, language changes. And so that's, mm-hmm. that's actually a good thing. Um, and that's actually not something that we, that the Christian tradition and also the, the Jewish tradition in the Old Testament would share with the, the pagan religions around them. Um, you know, pagan religion didn't have a concept of the Bible, didn't have a concept of um, the, the, the scripture as the source of religious and theological life. It didn't have that. Um, if you look at the pagans, the Celtic tribes, they didn't have any view of religious knowledge being written down. They purposely avoided that because they wanted it to be controlled by the, the religious elites. They wanted the Druids to have the secret knowledge. The Bible is about presenting the revelation of God in a language that people can understand freely. Um, and, and that you know reflects in the, the plethora of English translations. Another reason why we have so many English translations is because the evidence that we avail of is, is growing all the time. So, you know, the first English translations, uh, well, going back to John Wycliffe, John Wycliffe um, in England in the 14th century, when he produced, or his followers at least, I don't think John Wycliffe himself produced the Wycliffe Bible, it would have been his followers, but they were primarily relying off the Latin Vulgate which, you know, was the best that they had at that time. They didn't have access to Greek or Hebrew manuscripts. But we get when we get to the 16th century, at the time of uh, William Tyndale, he does have access to Hebrew manuscripts. He does have access to printed editions of both the Hebrew Bible and the Greek New Testament um, because of the Renaissance, because of the printing press. And when he's producing, you know, his edition of the Bible, he's using the best available evidence to him. But, you know, you fast forward then to the 17th century the King James Bible then has access to more information than Tyndale did. And so the revision that they produced best reflected the available evidence to them. Skip forward to the 19th century, the the revised um, standard version or the revised version that's produced in 1881, it again is availing of manuscripts that were unknown and unavailable to the King James translators. Um, Manuscripts like the the Great Vaticanus Codex or the Sinaiticus um, Codex uh, Codex Alexandrinus in the British Library. So they produced the text that best, you know, reflected the evidence. And then we go into the 20th century, the discovery of ancient papyri, the Chester Beatty papyri, the Bodimer papyri, these ancient fragments of the, uh, the Gospels and the copies of Paul's writings. That's reflected then in uh, modern English translations. So that's another reason why you have so many is because these translations are trying to use the, the best available evidence that they have all the time. And I guess the, the another reason would simply be that there are different philosophies of translation. And that's reflected in the different uh, versions of the Bible that you have. You have different schools of thought about how best to translate the text. And that that is reflected then in, in different translations that, that we see. Yeah, let's talk a second about translation philosophy, just because um, now, when you lived in Ukraine, did you learn Ukrainian or did you learn Russian? I learned Russian. Um, at that time, it was it was more widely spoken. Now it's it's become a very uh, a very political question in Ukraine sure. in these yeah. days. Yeah, yeah. So I'm a I'm a fluent Hungarian speaker, and so I think Great. that uh, you know I did a lot of translation in Hungary, both um, yeah. written translation and live interpretation. And I think that having that experience mm. helps me understand a little bit more when it comes to translating the Bible and translation philosophy, and maybe, you know, I would love for you to talk more about that, but I would say that um, part of the issue, isn't it, that there may be multiple ways to translate something, 
And you want to do so in a way that faithfully reflects. But in that process, you are doing a bit of interpretation. So maybe we could talk about even what is the difference between translation and interpretation, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, that's, that is a hard question. What is the difference? They're probably the same thing to some degree. Um, you know, to translate, you are rendering from an original source language into a receptor language um, concepts. Um, languages are different. You know, uh, Greek has the aorist tense. English doesn't have the aorist tense. Uh, so there are, there are times when a word-for-word literal translation will fundamentally break down. And in fact, to pursue rigid literal translation would be basically abandoning the project of, of translating because you'll render something incomprehensible. Um, so there are times where you, you're going to have to render either in a new idiom, um, an expression found in the original texts, or you're going to have to find an approximation to a tense or a case that the original source language has that your receptor language does not have. Um, you know, like in Russian, there is no definite or indefinite article. And that, mm-hmm. that can be significant for understanding the text in, in, in the New Testament, in different passages that can be important. And so you have to work with what you have. Your language um, will have to accommodate ideas as best you can. Um, so, yeah, translation is always has some element of interpretation. Yet at the same time, there are clearly misleading or false or erroneous translations that don't do justice either syntactically or grammatically to the original language um, or that paraphrase to such a degree that they obscure the original meaning. And so that that is something you need to be aware of. You know, our, our knowledge of the biblical languages has grown since the you know, the early English translations, um, the Granville-Sharp rule. This is a, a rule in, in Greek grammar that was unknown in the 17th century at the time with those great English translations. Um, but it, it is important. Um, you know, certainly it helps us to understand the, the text better. And modern English translations, you know, render correctly those grammatical rules that were only discovered in the 18th and 19th century through research. And so our knowledge of the language is also improving, and that helps translators to more accurately reflect uh, the text as as they are understanding it, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Well, let me ask you this. Having studied um, all of these things, which Bible translation do you use in practice? Um, In terms of translation, my my go-to Bible is the, the English Standard Version, the ESV. And that is a revision um, of the RSV, and which in turn goes back to the revised version, which in turn goes back to the King James Bible. So it's in that lineage. Um, and when we say it's a revision, it is using a different textual basis for its translation than what the King James did, in terms of the New Testament, at least anyway. It is using a, a very primitive Greek text, the the United Bible Society's Greek text, which uh, avails of evidence from all sorts of early and diverse papyrus manuscripts and early manuscripts. So it, it avails of the earliest and best evidence and also from the Dead Sea Scrolls. Mm. Um, its philosophy is, it tends to be a formal equivalent translation, which tries as best as it can to render a word-for-word translation. So it does tend to lean towards a more literalness. It tries to respect word order 
as best as it can while recognizing that, you know, it's rendering into English, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And so there will always be changes and adaptations that are needed to, to render, you know, correctly and understandably those, those languages. Hmm. Yeah. Would you say there are any Bible translations you would advise people to avoid? Um, so, yeah, I mean, it depends what a Bible translation is used for. You know, I think of the, the, the message. I don't think that was intended to be an expository text. I don't think it was intended to be used as a, as a text to preach, um, you know, or to expound uh, on a Sunday. I think it was a, a text, you know, for personal edification and for, uh, for that. And so if, I think it needs to be respected from that. I wouldn't encourage pastors to be preaching from the message because of the layers of paraphrase and, it, um, and subjectivity that that obviously goes through as a paraphrase. Um, that can really hamper you to, to be effective in exegetically breaking down the text and to presenting that if you're teaching it or for Bible study. Um, you know, there are Bibles that are produced certainly by unorthodox groups. Um, these translations will invariably um, follow a similar pattern. Uh, one of these patterns is that they will keep the translators secret or unknown. Mm. And it is also usually invariably that these are translations produced for a particular community in isolation from the rest of Christian scholarship or the Christian community. Um, the, the New World Translation definitely comes to mind. Um, and that is a translation that is clearly marked by um, doctrinal biases that reflect the unique perspective of the the Watchtower Jehovah Witness movement, um, particularly with the deity of Jesus. Interestingly, the those moments where they most clearly reveal their hand have nothing to do with the Greek manuscript evidence or the even the grammatical or syntactical uh, understanding of the Greek language. It invariably is simply a changing of the text to reflect the doctrinal position of that group, such as the inclusion of um, words to diminish the deity of Christ in Colossians, where you know he is above all other things. Um, it, yeah, I think that that is definitely something to be aware of. Are you familiar with the Passion Translation? No. Yeah, it's um, it's a similar translation. It comes out of a particular group um, of. I don't even want to call them charismatic because I think it would just be a slight yeah. against the charismatic sure, people sure. I, I know. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's a certain group here in the United States and they, I would say that their translation reflects their, their agenda, but also, you know, they want to have a translation that uses the wording that they use within their tribe. Um, but furthermore, they have done exactly what you're talking about. They've hidden a lot of their, um, their translators and yeah. um yeah, so this translation's gotten quite a lot of criticism over the last year. Um, and yeah, so I, I would, I, this would be another one that I would hold suspect. I, I'd say check it yeah. out and um, yeah. maybe maybe let me know if I'm totally wrong on this. But um, sure. everything I've yeah. read about it, I, I do a radio show in which it's kind of like an unscripted call-in show. And yeah. I've gotten a lot of questions about it. Um, but definitely... Um, I'm looking at their website right now. They just, uh, they're clearly trying to make it mainstream. Interesting. Um, and kind do of they, also trying to pass it off as a legitimate translation. 
do they you said that they kept their translator secret is it it's not we're not told who the translating committee was are we so now we're told that it was uh one man in particular who did okay. it and i'm not finding his name on their website um, and are we told what textual basis they based their translation on um we are told or is it simple they have a translation philosophy section on their website oh, and yeah. essentially here's all it says it kind of says some vague things about how bible translation works in theory and then it says yeah. the passion translation is an essential equivalence translation okay and that's basically all it says okay great not not very in depth but um no. compared to actually the, the preface to the english standard version it says the committee is the full list of all the translators and editors and sub-editors is available. Uh, you can write off to Crossway, they'll send it out to you. Uh, it also explains the textual basis. It says that the Old Testament is based on Biblia Hebraica Stuttgartensia, second edition. It avails of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Septuagint, the Syriac, the Vulgate were necessary. And for the New Testament, it's based off of the fourth edition of the German Bible Society, Greek New Testament text. No, Nothing hidden. No surprises. You know exactly what they're doing and how they have arrived at those decisions. Um, that that is the hallmark of, of true Christian scholarship. Is it's out there. It's it's open. It's the pursuit of truth. It's not this secret one man committee from a particular denomination producing a text that just happens to reinforce everything that they have been teaching all along. Um, that is a huge red flag. Uh, a great English translation that um, a lot of the faculty from Dallas Seminary was involved in is the New English Translation, the Net Bible. It's a different philosophy entirely. It's it's more thought for thought. It's um, you know a dynamic equivalence. So it's it's um, trying really to pursue a more thought for thought than word for word translation. But one of the real benefits is the footnotes, uh, the translating notes, the textual notes. They they really try to be so clear in explaining the decision. And how they arrived at the text, even you know, uh, for particular verses or particular words, they will try to explain. Here's why we chose this reading. Um, this was the evidence that we looked at, and this is how we came to our conclusion. That is extremely helpful. That will actually help you to understand the process of translation and textual criticism by reading those notes. You will you'll certainly begin to understand what this process is all about. Yeah, I've heard about the NET. I had some people from our church who are. Um, I'm not sure exactly what their their background is, but they they sent me a an article about it. Asked if I had heard about it. Everything I read up on it looked really good, um, but I have noticed that it's not widely distributed. No, it kind of it kind of par- it kind of came out around the time of the ESV, I believe, and the ESV became that dominant uh, sort of modern evangelical translation, essentially in the English in the English speaking world, much more to it far greater degree than the net bible did yeah i think the timing uh they definitely uh lost out to, to crossway in terms of the the influence of their translation yeah let me ask you this what do you think about the influence of publishing companies like let's say zondervan yeah. or um yeah. or crossway right sure. crossway for example publishes a lot of things that are in a reformed vein and yes. so um some people we we use the ESV at the church that I pastor, and some people have asked me, "Hey, isn't this yeah. a Calvinist Bible?" And I said, "Wait a second, hmm, is there interesting?" Um, I I use it because I actually like the theory that went into the translation yeah. of it, um, sure. and for no other reason, right? And so, um, hmm. 
it was almost uh, almost a guilt by association thing. Like you can't read this Bible because the people who are involved in this publishing company tend yeah. to hold certain theological positions. Yeah, it's not it's not a great it's not a great way to look at that. To be honest, um, the, ultimately the the merit or demerit of a translation is based on on the work that they do. Um, yeah, I, I wouldn't simply abandon a translation just because there seems to be. Uh, you know, a preference of one theological tradition or, or not within this Bible and whatever. Uh, the really, the true Calvinist Bible, though, was the Geneva Bible. That oh, was, there you go. That's true. Yeah. The 1560 edition. Yeah, that was the, that was definitely, that was the first English Bible brought to the US on the Mayflower. That was the, mm. the Bible of, of America. It was the Calvinistic uh the Geneva Bible. And that was actually one of the reasons why the King James Bible was produced. They, they wanted a Bible for the Church of England that was less Calvinistic. Interesting. <laughs> Be- because there was a lot of footnotes okay. in the Geneva Bible that were, you know, definitely reflective of the of the tradition of Calvinism. Uh, and one of the one of the rules in the King James Bible was, you know, we don't want any footnotes sort of addressing controversial theological topics mm. of the 17th century. So Keep keep the footnotes to translation. So that was that was one of the reasons behind that 1611 edition. Um, yeah, but going back to publishing, yeah, I mean that also has to be said is one of the reasons why we do have so many English translations is uh, it can be hugely lucrative. So big big Christian publishers will definitely try to get behind a translation that they are uh, think that they can sell and that they're proud of um, because that can be certainly a lucrative market. Yeah, especially in in the English-speaking world, more so than other um, other versions in different languages, I think. Right. Yeah, I think in Hungary, you know, um, there are about four mainstream translations. Yeah. yeah. And um, yeah, there's probably not a lot of money to be found in uh, yeah, but Bible translation in Hungary. In the English-speaking world, particularly the North American uh, market is is massive. So yeah, that would definitely be a strategic uh, reason. Yeah. So should that give us alarm? I mean, should should we be concerned about that? No, I, I'm not personally. Uh, you know, comparing translations can be very can be very helpful, um, and it's not to diminish the, the the scholarship and the work that's done. These publishers, these big publishers, are availing of the best scholarship that they can, and these are by no means uh, insignificant. Sondervan or whatever, um, they can produce and Crossway they produce some exceptionally uh, important work because of their ability to get on board the leading scholars of the day that can you know definitely be a, a benefit uh, so I, I wouldn't I wouldn't worry about that okay well let's let's wrap it up Shane I really appreciate your time could you just maybe in summary give a kind of final word to our listeners yeah um, so I'm I'm passionate about the Bible and it's something that I've been reading since I was very young translation it can be a can be a controversial topic and and rightly so i mean we have talked about you know spurious translations and you know uh, versions of the bible that do not do justice to the text but on the whole i would say that we should recognize as readers of the english bible how blessed we are how uniquely privileged we are and to be thankful for that and to avail of the the resources that we have you know we um, we are benefiting from the blood, sweat, and tears of people that have gone before us. We think back to Tyndale and his desire to put in the hands of the church in England a reliable, 
readable version of the Bible in English. And he paid for that with his life. He was burnt at the stake um, by Henry VIII, strangely enough. But that should, it should um, remind us of how privileged we are. And the fact that we can actually own a Bible, um, that is so unique in church history. Like if, if you've ever seen, uh, you've been to the British Library, so I'm sure you've seen, um, you know, the Alexandrinus and the Sinaiticus Codex. Those things are massive. I mean, you don't want to carry one of those things around. And those were unique because those are panchette manuscripts. They're manuscripts of the entire Bible. Um, they're huge. They're not mobile. The amount of money that it cost, the amount of time it took, um, that was not for personal use. Um, Christians in the first and early centuries, you would be privileged to have a copy of maybe one or two books in the New Testament, and you would have to rely on the church to to present the text to you on Sunday, and you would have to listen to that. And it was by listening to the text that you grew in your understanding of the gospel and theology. Um, but to think that you could have your own Bible in more than one version, uh, the early church would have just been amazed that Christians would have that resource. And yet today we know how how little we we em- embrace that and how little we take that um, as a gift from God. And really, it's to it's to our shame that we don't avail of that better um, and you know read the Bible and study it and diligently seek to conform our life to it and to the message of Christ. Um, so I would say, you know, English versions, yeah, read them, <laughs> get out there and uh, compare them, understand the philosophy. It's not that difficult. You know, read the preface to your Bible. It will explain what it's doing and what the philosophy is, what texts they use. Um, the, the the original King James had a beautiful essay at the front of it, the translators to the reader. They've taken it out in the reprints, but it, it's an amazing essay. It lays out the benefits that those translators had in the previous translations that went before them. It explains the purpose and the philosophy of this new translation that they produced. And I think that is also something that we can skip over. Um, but you need to take the time to understand what you're reading. Read the preface, read the introduction, see what they're doing. Um, and that will, I think, help you appreciate what you have. Excellent. Uh, Shane, is there any way for our listeners to keep up with you online? Do you have uh, things published or a way that they can listen to messages, etc.? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, not really. Like NS Evangelical Church is is the church side that I I, um, I minister with, and so we just uh, we don't really have a very uh, fancy online presence. I think we post our, our teachings on on YouTube, um, but beyond that, no, there's not a there's not a great deal. Um, I did write an article for the, I think, the Southern Baptist Journal of Theology concerning a very obscure question of church history uh, concerning the the date for Easter in the 7th century. So I don't think people are going to be rushing out to do that anytime soon. (laughs) So no, I'm sorry. I can't help you there. Well, you have a wealth of knowledge on this subject. Thanks so much for sharing it with our our listeners. And uh, I, I definitely enjoyed hearing it myself. So Shane, yeah, God bless thanks. you and your ministry and your family. Thanks Thank for being you so on much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Theology for the People. If you would like to help this podcast, the best way to do that is by leaving us a rating and review, especially a written review over on the iTunes 
podcast store, the Apple podcast store. Just go in there, uh, give a review. And especially if you write something that really helps boost this podcast in the algorithm, helps other people find it and uh, come across it when they're searching and looking for content. Um, you can also share it online and share it with friends. Uh, that'd be much appreciated. Make sure to te- uh, check out the text version of my blog over at nickkady.org. God bless you. We'll see you next time.